everybody. Thanks for joining Intellicast. This is season three, episode 23 of our podcast. This is Brian Lamar. I am your host today and producer Brian Peterson joining me. Hello, Brian. Hello. How are you? All right. We have um, an awesome interview today, so we're going to keep it short and quick of the intro. Um, the guests today are from Measure Protocol. It's John Martin. It's Owen Hanks. It's Paul Netto coming from all over the world. They're all part of the British Commonwealth, which is one of the topics we talk about today. But the main reason for joining would be talking about kind of their panel. Um, they have an app and um, they're in the US, the UK and Canada. And it's pretty cool to use some blockchain technology. That's one of the topics. They talk a lot about data quality. So if you're interested in data quality and transparency, it's really throughout the, the podcast interview. Um, they just released um, some passive behavior press release, which is pretty cool. And they gave uh, us some breaking news. They yeah, gave the us some breaking news. news. Yep. Um, and so I it's one of my favorite interviews. I've known these guys for a couple of years. They won the IAX Innovation Com- um, Competition in 2018, which was an amazing um, win because there were a lot of awesome companies in that competition. I remember it well. And they're good guys. They're super smart. They are passionate about um, improving the respondent experience. And um, they're very passionate about improving data quality, which I think most of our listeners um, will enjoy. And what else am I missing, Brian? Um, we probably got the best how you got into market research story ever. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of fun. It shows their personalities, and that was an awesome story. Probably the best one we've had. We asked that question in most interviews. Um, some good four Ps at the end um, where they make fun of America a little bit, just a little bit, mostly because I tend to make fun of Canada and other um, countries as a sort of a joke. But um, they, they hit me back a couple of times. It was awesome to hear. So without further ado, listen to John Martin, Owen Hanks, Paul Netto from Measure Protocol. Joining us now from Measure Protocol, we have an all-star panel. This is awesome. Um, we have Owen Hanks. He's co-founder and CEO. Hello, Owen. Hey, Brian. Nice to be here. Thank you. You, you as well. Uh, Paul Netto, he's the co-founder and chief marketing officer. Hello, Paul. Hey, guys. And last but not least, John Martin. He's a co-founder and chief technology, te- chief technology officer. Hey, John. Hey. hey, Brian. It's good to be on finally. Yeah, I know you're a longtime listener, and um, man, it was, I'm super excited to have you guys on to talk about uh, Measure Protocol. We'll probably have a little fun as well. First off, let's. Um, how'd you guys get started in market research? Well, we must, I must admit that um, I didn't wake up one day and um, you know declare I wanted to be a market researcher. Um, I actually, yeah, not many people did. <laughs> of all things, I'm a I'm a geographer. And I started my um, career, you know, doing like remote sensing and offshore mapping and stuff and that. But I think of the three of us, I probably have the least interesting. I think John kind of wins the award here when it comes to, uh, you know, how we got into market research. Hey, John? <laughs> yeah, in a way. I mean, it's a, it's a silly story. But um, so I was, um, I guess I was 21 or 22, just finished school and quit my job and left Australia, which is where I'm from, uh, for Canada for a couple of years of skiing, um, as many Australians do. And before I went skiing, I spent the, I had planned on spending a few months in Toronto. I had a friend there and um, wanted to experience the city. 
And so when I got there, I started looking for a few jobs, just short-term jobs. And one of the jobs that I applied for was um, there was a job ad looking for a JavaScript programmer for three months um, with experience in the adult website industry. Oh, my gosh. And so (laughs) with the copious adult industry experience that I had, I applied for the job and thought, well, it'll be an interesting interview, if nothing else. Right. So I went along to this interview in uh, Midtown Toronto, and it turned out to be just a market research company. It was this little company called SurveySite um, that were doing market research. But what they wanted was um, somebody, a programmer who was who was experienced at building pop-ups and pop-unders, and you know, this is sort of back in two thousand three, two thousand four, where the web was a real junk show where, you know, every website that you visited, um, ads would pop up and windows would appear and survey site was trying to do that, but to do it for market research. So yes, I got into market research because I, uh, applied to, um, be a programmer in the adult website industry. That's amazing. That's what, that's a top two or three story that I, we've heard on this podcast or maybe even ever heard. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a little random. Awesome. I, I'm, not, awesome. Brian, I'm, not, I'm not even going to go after that story. I have nothing to compete with that story. And so I think John wins on behalf of me, Sherry. I'm, I'm not even going to answer how I got into this industry. Okay. Yeah. John wins that one of, of all time. It's hard to top that one. Thanks, thanks Owen, for knowing um, not to jump in on that one. So all you three are all three co-founders. What led you guys to start Measure Protocol? Um, so this is Owen. Um, so I guess, sorry, I'm still sort of partly laughing, even though I've heard that story from <laughs> the past. Uh, so, um, we actually, we have a, a, a strange coming together, maybe not so strange, but, um, we, um, so I owned a business in the UK, which was actually an ad tech video, ad tech business. Um, and, uh, that business was acquired by, a, a West coast, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, video technology company, um, mostly focused around advertising. Um, and after the acquisition, um, I was sat on the executive team and then um, uh, we were looking for a research business um, to validate um, ad effectiveness. And we, at that company, we acquired John and Paul's company. So I met John and Paul back in 2012 um, through the acquisition. And, and in fact, actually, the three of us, if you think about us, we, we were the acquirees of the company. So in many uh, sort of coffee breaks and over a beer in, in, on the West Coast, we would, uh, we, we would huddle together and talk about our experiences of being acquired and you know, the, the goodness and the you know, sometimes not the weight of that. And, um, and we formed a bond between the three of us that uh, we stayed at that company for you know various amounts of time. You know, um, I was there for four and a bit more years, and uh, and and coming out of that, um, we all kind of went our separate ways and um, uh, and and did different things, mostly consulting for for other people. But uh, I I like to think that I have some off the wall ideas every once in a while, um, which in most cases uh, is good that I have John and Paul around because they keep me a little bit closer to the ground. Um, but uh, so I had an idea, which is completely nothing to do with market research. And I, so I called up John and said, hey, do you think this could work? And I'm not even going to tell you what the idea was because it's ridiculous. But the, um, uh, and John, and John in, in his, all of his honesty, he, was, he, 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 agree, he, 
in his nice way, he, he actually said, oh, do you know, uh, yeah, it could do. But what he really meant was not a chance in hell. Um, that's a ridiculous idea. But anyway, we started to talk about the technology and, 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 it, and that technology happened to be blockchain technology. And so John and I um, started to, to kind of hammer on um, what at the time was a growing, you know, um, global sort of accept, not acceptance, but understanding of blockchain. And that was Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and things like that. And so John and I on running through this, um, this thought of uh, actually, is there a way to utilize that in, in a field that we knew? Mostly it was being used by fun, you know, cryptocurrencies, fintech, et cetera. And, and, um, and so we noodled on, on, a, on an idea um, for a while and, and then and John, uh, sorry, and Paul had a, a very, a very good and normal and f- fully paid job and working for a large market research company who I'll let him name in a minute. And, uh, and we kept on basically abusing his time um, between the two of us. And we were like, oh, Paul, could you just, just tell us if you think this would work? And just tell us. And eventually he just got bored of, uh, of, of being asked questions on the sideline. And so we, we decided to set Measure Protocol up with the premise that we thought that we could use some of the things that John and I had learned around blockchain, which, which got us very dark and very deep in technology quite quickly. Um, and, and Paul really just kind of added the, 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 the focus to us to, to turn what John and I had been musing on for a while into something that, that we actually saw was a benefit to the industry. Um, and so I guess that's, that was a, about, it started in sort of November of 2008. 17 we actually formed the company in march of 2018 and uh, and i guess you know the rest the rest is history we actually eventually dragged paul out of that well-paid um, market research uh, right uh, multinational company to come and join us a few months later um and uh yeah and, yeah and then we just started building from there which is kind of about may of 2018 so uh yeah so that's 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 the background we we've known each other for about six to seven years and uh maybe a bit longer than that now and uh yeah, through through our differences, we we tend to get a reasonable outcome. So, uh, um, yeah, so that's that that that's the that's the story, I guess. No, that's that's really interesting, and I think it was June in 2018 when I and a lot of other people really got well, more traditional market researchers got kind of introduced to blockchain technology, and it kind of exploded. And that's I think when I started meeting you all, and you could immediately tell you talked about the bonding that you did over the acquisitions. And you could tell it then and you can tell it now that you all have such good chemistry and you work off each other really well. And that's, I mean, it's so apparent. So um, that's, a, that's a really cool story. Thanks for sharing. I think um, the only one thing I would add to that is that I think you're probably being a little polite, Brian, because I think that <laughs> it was actually, um, it was at IIEX um, mm-hmm. when we had just formed a company. Um, Paul was still in his previous at his previous employers and we decided to write a pretty a, a pretty interesting let's put it that way and you can read into the word interesting what you will aggressive uh, aggressive it's funny because uh we were talking about this i think this just this morning on a on a company call not this specific specific presentation but we were talking about another presentation where we were going to punch somebody in the face with <laughs> We were going to have a message that was so aggressive. And that was the exact phrasing that I remember, Owen, you and I sitting there mulling over what we were going to present at IIEX. And we just, one of us just decided to say, screw it. Let's just punch them in the face and then we'll, we'll, we'll get their attention and then we'll start a dialogue that way. And I think that's what we did. Yeah. Oh. 
Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think in part it's, you know, there's things that you can't unsee. Like, you know, I, we've been in this industry, I want to say almost like 20 years. And, you know, we've been through the stages of the early internet uh, where you're just trying to get people off of a website to participate. You know, we built panels. We've done some of the early kind of, you know, machine learning type stuff with, you know, research data. But what really kind of attracted to me this stuff, and, you know, I've said this is stuff that you can't unsee, is when you see some of the problems and challenges around engaging with participants and data quality and all that. And if you think of what some of the systemic problems are, and then when you put on this this hat of looking at through the lens of, of, of blockchain, there ends up being... Um, a number of things that I think lend really well to this, you know, you know, to this, um, to this industry and, um, you know, putting aside a lot of the kind of technical pieces and stuff, it's around this notion of, of trust and, and this startup stuff, you know, John, Owen and I, we've kind of been through this a few times and I had said, I'll never do this again because it's unkind. It's exhausting. It's, um, it's dark, it's exciting, you know, the, the roller coaster ride. But when we kind of started talking about this and thinking about some of the potential benefits for the industry, you just can't walk away from that. You can't unsee what some of the, um, you know, groundbreaking just from the fundamentals of what we're doing. And um, I think it ultimately comes down to, you know, we're in this industry about trust. And that's, one of the ways that we describe, you know, market research often is you're building trust with clients to build reliable data to make decisions. Um, and a lot of the fundamentals of what we're trying to do is, um, is you know, central to that. And we often, you know, like what we're doing today, we've been doing this, you know, for two years now. And we often tell this story is if we had this moment where we could erase our memory of history have this, you know, men in black moment um, where we kind of forget about some of the problems and the history that we've had this in the industry. And if we brought into a room some researchers, brands, uh, technologists and consumers and said, hey, we want to build this ecosystem where we collect data from, you know, individuals to um, advise our you know, clients to, you know, make decisions and, okay, what are the fundamentals of this? Well, everybody probably started agreeing, okay, let's do this a way that we have confidence in the data that we collect accurate. We'll, okay, let's protect, you know, users' data. We'll give them control of their data. We'll respect their privacy. We'll pay them fairly for, um, for their time because this has real implications on the outside. And we'll be transparent in what we do and how we're sharing data and how we're paying people and, you know, what we're doing. So central to this is this concept of, of trust, which in many ways is an implementation of game theory. So fundamentally, we're trying to build, you know, trust and privacy by design in everything we do. Because once you break down trust, you have situations where, you know, people are gaming the system or fraud becomes rampant. And on the other side of that, you have poor data quality. So we think in many ways, this is about aligning with the consumer and the consumer experience. And so the last couple of years have really been about, you know, building services and to collect data, whether this is 
uh, survey data, you know, asking somebody one question or, you know, 15 minutes, you know, worth of questions or connecting to data sources or sharing, you know, passive behaviors, like, you know, what are they, you know, consuming on their devices? So these are all kind of fundamental to our approaches. And, you know, we believe that the end goal, if we can increase trust in how we engage, we will kind of lower the barriers to sharing data and the end result is, you know, better data quality and confidence in the data that we're delivering and decisions that people, you know, you know, people are making. So that's been kind of central to the core of how we've been approaching things. And this stuff is, it is difficult. Um, the complexities around the data, around, um, you know, technology and consumers are, in a very early stage, as is the you know the industry, um, about what does it mean to be transparent and privacy first. So you know our first you know foray into you know to being public was at IEX, and we were fortunate that we won the innovation award for our approach in blockchain, and that's kind of set our trajectory of of, of where we're going. Okay, you you mentioned trust a lot there, um, which is core to what you're doing, and um, do. You- do you mean trust from like the buyer of your um, service or is it trust from the members of your service? Is it all of those? Is, is trust like very broad? Yeah, it's trust in all the players in the marketplace. So this is the consumers. Like if you think from the consumer's perspective, they don't have a lot of trust in the industry because they know that, you know, what is it? You know, eight and 10, nine and 10 surveys don't get completed after they've gone through, you know, five or 10 questions of, you know, what's your age and gender once again. So they have very little confidence and trust into, um, you know, the engagement. So they're going to try to be most efficient to get those, you know, two pennies that they get, um, you know, compensated for as well as when you're buying data, there's, you know, there's, you know, some mistrust into, the quality of that data, you know, we talk about professional respondents and we typically overbuy because we know 30% of the sample is going to get, you know, thrown away. So we want to, you know, I describe there's a formula for trust and that's consistency over time while motivations hold, you know, constant. So let's align people's motivations um, and provide a consistent, you know, positive experience and everything else becomes much easier once you establish that. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. Tell us about like what what is Measure Protocol um, and kind of what have you guys been working on more recently, I guess? Um, so I'll, 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 I'll start and undoubtedly John and Paul will jump, jump in anyway. But um, So I think um, initially what we had originally um, the protocol in measure protocol was because our original um, design was to uh, to build a protocol that would be the the, the foundations um, that would lock in all of the things that Paul just described trust fair fair value to incentives to consumers for their for their time or, or um, and transparency uh, for the buyer. Um, which would raise quality over time. So that was that was, and we would lock all that in at, at the protocol level, and then uh, um, take that and other people to build services on top of that. I think we we 
we moved along a little further to start creating those services ourselves when when we took that protocol to market initially um, as a concept, not a finished build, but as a concept. And we, what we heard from a myriad of places, market research agencies, data collection companies, you know, all brands, et cetera, is that the, the resource uh, or the, the, yeah, the resource around um, available technical talent um, that was, uh, was free, you know, that was, you know, available to do, you know, kind of large scale work was just in, in short supply, high, high demand, short supply, and therefore, um, you know, building a protocol with, with many hundreds of developers around the world working on the protocol and, and building services on top probably wasn't going to happen in the short term. So we decided to build services. And, and I guess the easiest way to describe that is we, we built apps um, as uh, on top of that protocol, which, uh, and the apps are, you know, you know, iOS and Android apps. And so consumers can um, download those, take part in what we call data jobs or data tasks. And that's, as Paul described, it's, you know, surveys or polls or metering or giving us uh, access to your browsing data or um, taking uh, a photo of your, you know, your bathroom cabinet to, to show us what, you know, what products you use. That's, that's a task or a job on one side and, and a user interface um, for buyers, mostly for market research, um, although we, we do intend to extend that to, to, to other industries and other brands as well, so that they can buy those pieces of data uh, over time in a much more automated way. And so we, we have this North Star, I guess, if you like, of, as, a, for a, as a company, is to, as, te- as a technology company, to, to build a fully automated trust uh, environment that that buyers can use our our tools to to buy whatever it is they want and um and consumers respondents can take part in that um and, and onboard themselves into and understand what that does through the applications and and actually we're just the we're, we're the 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 conduit of technology that sits between them and therefore consumer gets keeps their their data private on their device um uh in a, in the lion's share of everything that we do um but always uh, anonymous and all, always um highly encrypted and so so that's that's kind of what we are and that's the set of products that we have and then you know more recently we've just expanded um on that with um with features and and products that just allow us to um to to talk to not just market research, but we can start to talk about, you know, potentially about other verticals as well. But I think in a research perspective, it's, um, I would, uh, I would, I often um, talk about the fact that what we're, that protocol in its concept was, the intention was to, to drive, um, as Paul calls it, trust. And I just sometimes describe that as clean water. If you mm-hmm. knew you could access clean water all the time, why would you want to access, you know, something that, that, that wasn't exactly what you wanted, right? So um, if, if we have, if we've got, if we can build the, the tools to validate consumers, um, protect their privacy, um, uh, pay them fairly, if we could focus on the consumer side of this, of this um, industry and treat them properly, then the outcomes 
should always be better for those that need their data. All right. So um, that was that was our, you know, our kind of thinking behind where we got to in and, and where we continually strive towards is that if there's a if if we spend as much time as we can focusing on those that provide the data and making sure that the experience you know, and that's just some simple things like we, we're, we're just an app. We're only app and mobile because we believe that that's actually in everything that we talk to consumers about is how they would, how they fit providing information into their busy lives, right? They, they, you know, these people have jobs. These people have lives. They're students. They're parents. They're, they've got other things. And that window of time and opportunity is just much more convenient on a mobile phone. And yes, there are uh, people will say that there are things that need to be done on a on a desktop or on a PC, etc. But actually, I think that's a technology issue rather than a user issue, right? So actually, we need to, you know, so we we took the stand of making that experience mobile and making it clean and easy to understand. And so we drive towards that from a consumer perspective, in with always the thought that if we get that right, then actually we're solving many of the problems that exist in our industry, uh, as in, um, you know, we can drive better quality. We can drive faster response times because, you know, we're, we're not hoping that someone sees an email in their inbox. We can actually notify them with, you know, with notifications on their app that their phone sits in their hand or in their pocket, you know, 95% of the day. And if it's not in their pocket, it's usually on their pillow, right, the side of their bed, right? So um, we we have the ability uh, and we think that that's the right way forward. So um, we, we just keep on adding um, to that clean water or that trust foundation, which is we then add tools and services that are actually closer aligned to what people expect and, and how people use them. Because our, our, we, we never came here into the, it, we never built measure to say that market research is um, the requests in market research are wrong it's just that the outputs are, are, are not necessarily what we hope for so if if we if we want images and if we want passive passive data and if we want some answers to surveys is that we just have to make sure that the the way that we do those things and the way that we ask people to complete those we're just being transparent with them we're just telling them all the reasons why that we want them and therefore we work on the on the premise and i'd like to think about this is that actually um you know, it's easier, always easier to do, um, uh, to remember the truth than it is a lie, right? And so actually that notion of doing the right thing and the, and, the, and telling the consumer the right thing to, and getting them to do the right thing to start with will be much easier um, to, to make it consistent and, and the outcome quality, I guess. That's where, that's where we sit right now. And, and that just, you know, in, in terms of what we have as an output as a company, that looks like sample, you know, whether it be manually bought or programmatically bought, it looks like, you know, as Paul says, you know, a, a, a quick, um, a quick uh, single response uh, question. It looks like passive metering. It looks like image upload. It looks like video upload. Um, so all of those things that we do, but with that bedrock. Um, and that's that's what we're up to now. And we, we we've, I guess, um, we launched the second of our apps, our Android app, in January. And since then, we've been you know going pretty heavily after uh, you know the the commercialization of our business, which is where we, where we are right now, driving hard towards that. Okay. So you're on both iOS and, and, um, yeah. Android. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in the UK and the U S right now and, and sorry, and Canada, sorry, I shouldn't forget that. Bear in mind. Okay. But the, uh, the, um, yeah. So, um, but majority U S and Canada right now with a small amount in, in, in Canada and, uh, 
um, yeah, and driving to, to global markets very soon. Okay. John, you've been unsuccessful for Australia so far, I'm assuming. Um, by the way, real, real quick, um, I'm a user of Measure, and you guys owe me 431 Measure points. I just checked my balance. That is, I think, $4.31. And all joking aside, I love the user experience, and I love that you guys focus on it. And uh, you're so transparent with what you're asking for people. And I'm hoping that helps lift up the industry and you know should build loyalty among your members and, and people that use your service as well. Um, I know one of the benefits, maybe you don't talk about it as a benefit, but I think some people are confused by it as blockchain. And I'm going to do a little quick rant on blockchain before I ask you what it is, um, because I, I don't really know what it is. But I don't really care what it is, to be honest with you, because I feel like um, it's a feature that we can use to improve trust and validation and loyalty. And um, it does a lot of things to help researchers and respondents but like we don't talk about in research we don't talk about what hashing is no one has to know what hashing is or how we pass variables through links in digital fingerprinting right but i feel like whenever blockchain is brought up people have to know all the ins and outs so i'm going to give you an opportunity here to describe kind of what is blockchain <laughs> okay um, well we we certainly don't have the time here to uh to to do this topic justice um and there's, there's plenty of sources online. YouTube is full of people doing blockchain explainers. But I think for this, for this purpose, given the context of this discussion, um, I do think it's useful to focus on the, the trust aspect of this. Um, so, you know, I think most people listening to this would have some sense that um, a blockchain is a type of database that um, you can trust, right? Um, it's a... Um, the specific technical term for this trust, um, or, or at least how it manifests in this context, is immutability. So these databases are immutable, which means that um, once something has been written to them, you can't modify or delete that thing, right? Which doesn't mean that you can't update information, but it means that um, you can't erase what um, had been said about that piece of information historically. So if I write to a blockchain that I drive a blue car on Monday and then on Wednesday I write something else to a blockchain that says I drive a red car, then that's fine. I, my current claim, everybody understands that my current claim is that I drive a red car, but they can also see that I had changed my mind um, about that and that previously my answer was different, right? And so the um, so, so that's... That sort of seemed that immutability that, that that trust seems like a trivial aspect of of a database, but it it's actually very very um, important and it leads to all of these interesting outcomes. You know, if you can think about some of the fundamental building blocks of modern society as being um, simple databases, when you really drill down into it, right? So our money, right? Um, Yuval Harari has called money a, a, a shared fiction amongst people. And really, when you drill down into it, the monetary system is just a database with the amount of money that everybody's got. And we just, we trust this because we trust banks and the banks are the ones that are sort of maintaining this database. The same is true for property rights. The same is true for um, incorporated companies and, and shareholders, right? At, at base, these things are just simple um, databases 
that record very simple bits of information. But from there, we get all of this interesting emergent property. And, and it's because when we can trust that information, then people can sort of coordinate around that and, uh, and do interesting things with it. Um, and so um, in the case of, of measure and market research, one of what we're trying to do essentially is build a system whereby we can um, make use of this immutable database to allow us to coordinate um, more efficiently and more effectively um, amongst one another. So, you know, when you think about um, just one aspect of this, when you think about um, how do you start to assess the quality of a, of a, of a response from a survey or from some study, right? And the peculiar thing about market research is that you, um, you don't have a third-party source to check it against. If I tell you in a survey that I'm planning on buying um, a new car in the first quarter of next year, you have n- no way of knowing whether that's true or not. The only way that you can try to figure out whether that's true is to look at the ways in which I interacted with the survey, right? So it's sort of the simple things like, was I speeding through the survey? Do my answers make um, sense sort of in, in aggregate um, and so on? And also you can start to look at how much do I trust this individual? Does he have a history of participating honestly and, and well and um, with veracity in these um, situations? And so um, as, as soon as you break down um, data quality to be um, a question of how much, not whether this answer is true or not, but how much evidence do I have that this individual is the type of individual that is likely to answer this true and that this answer um, uh, is um, compatible with all of the other answers that this person has given in various contexts over time, then you can start to see how having a a database that can't be modified um, uh, retrospectively becomes very useful, right? Because now we have, um, we have a population of people, a population of respondents who can participate in a survey and we can dig into this database, have some level of confidence that the data is, um, is accurate um, and we can make our own assessment as to whether we trust the fact that we trust John when he says that he's going to buy a new car in the first quarter of next year. Um, so that's sort of, that's the journey from, you know, a blockchain being a simple database that, that can't be modified, uh, all the way to how does, how does that one innovation start to impact the way and the success with which we, um, we do market research and population research more broadly. That was excellent, John. I'm glad that, um, the chief technology officer answered the blockchain question that adds some credibility to the answer. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Is that how Measure Protocol, I mean, that's very different than other more traditional sample companies. What you just described, I think most of the companies that I work with can't talk what or say what you just said, but um, how is that different than others in the space and how else are you different, I guess, is the question. Well, look, I, 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 I mean, maybe Paul's better to answer this, but, but what I would say is that, you know, just to be sort of a little um, um, humble for a moment, we... Um, we do have the benefit that we're a new entrance into the space. So we don't have a long history of, you know, skeletons in our closet and things, you know, um, response, shitty response rates that we're trying to hide or, you know, um, or high levels of churn that we're trying to hide. So some, some of the benefit of this is just starting fresh, starting anew. 
um, but but doing so with with a, a new set of rule, uh, rules um, rules of the road associated with when uh, what goes on when you engage via measure. Um, I think you know one way in which um, conducting research through measure is different than conducting it through um, an alternative supplier is that at the end of the research study, as well as getting the data, you will get, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the number is, maybe 15 or 20 points of information about each individual that, um, that participated in the study. And it's not, uh, it's not demography and psychography and stuff like that, although certainly we could, we could pull that stuff from the user with their consent. But this is stuff about what um, historically, what um, has their participation in this network looked like? What, how long have they been on the network? Um, have we validated some of their basic demography against accounts that they've claimed on Facebook or LinkedIn? Um, have they um, verified their location via a GPS signal that we can rely upon? Um, all of those things, you know, do they take one survey a month or 10 surveys a month or 10 surveys a day? We can sort of pull all of that information. And I think, you know, when you strip it right back, while, while the, the, the goal of measure is to provide high-quality respondents and high-quality data, really what we're doing is we're providing all of the metadata around research and, and setting up the system in such a way that we both um, skew participation in measure to be high-quality and whether it is or it isn't, we give you, the researcher, the data with which you can judge how well we've done that. So, you know, I think the experience of buying sample from a lot of from a lot of companies in the space is a black box. And it's made even worse when you start to think about um, marketplaces, right, which are, which are providing a useful service, but they're further abstracting the researcher from the respondent. And you really have no idea who this person is, where they came from, what they were doing when they were interrupted, it, you know, um, how many times they were interrupted that day or that week or that month. And so you get all of that information with measure. And um, I, I think as a company, we're just trying to set set the set a new a, a new minimum bar for for the way in which samples should be delivered. Absolutely, that's awesome to hear. Um, as a buyer of sample for many years, I, I really hope that is the new bar. Um, so what's next? You talked about passive data. I know there's that's pretty new, I think, and you can talk about that. Or and you talked about metering, and you hinted at new markets. But what, what else is kind of coming out? What's new? Uh, Paul, do you want to uh, do you want to talk about what you've been huddling on? Oh, which piece is this? Oh, are you making an early announcement about what happens next Tuesday? Oh well, yes. Um, so we're starting to we're going to be launching this um, uh, new product um, that is kind of a new take on Omnibus, and um, it's uh, it's called Measure QA for. Um, uh, you know, questions and um, uh, quick answers. And, you know, one of the side effects that we've had um, of approaching, uh, you know, this, um, you know, this area in this way is that a lot of the attraction we're getting from uh, a, a panelist participant base are young audiences. Um, I'd say it's what, about 70% are 18 to 34 um, so there's, you know, because we're mobile only and we kind of focus on user experience, there's been, you know, some, the easiest audiences to capture some of these young audiences. So as part of this, there's this, you know, we get a lot of demand, people asking, hey, I need to dip in and get some information about, um, 
you know, whether it's a PR company or an ASO agency or something, uh, they need kind of that one killer point. So we've kind of launched, we're launching this um, agile uh, product where you can kind of dip into the audience and, you know, within, you know, 24 to 48 hours, um, we can get some data from a few hundred respondents. Awesome. And by, by the way, I've, I, I didn't hear the word omnibus for a couple of years. This year, especially Q1 when things were, I guess, somewhat normal, I heard people asking about omnibus all the time. It's like completely reemerged. So this is really good timing, I think. I think that people are kind of craving going back to the omnibus. So I think that'll be that, – that's huge. Yeah, what I think is happening there in part is I think research data – or the approach is starting to expand a bit more outside of the industry. So, you know, media agencies, they have a question, you know, we talk to ASO agencies and they have a question that they need to, you know, to ask or PR agencies, they have these um, agile questions that they need to ask and they don't have a mind frame of, let me go to my research agency and we'll kick up this, um, you know, this, uh, you know, research job, we just want answers to a question, kind of just how, you know, Google at one point, you know, they changed the, you know, the field by just having a single, you know, you know, text space to enter in what you're looking for. You know, we're moving to this agility, we've gone through all this automation, we're moving into this world of agility for data as well. So I suspect that's kind of driving this, um, um, this omnibus, and we're careful not to just say omnibus because outside of our industry, people generally don't understand what it means. Right, <laughs> got it. Man, that, I learned a lot about uh, measure protocol and blockchain today. So thank you guys. Um, one of the key benefits that you you've talked about, which I'm passionate about myself, is um, around data quality and how that's one of your focuses is to really lift up data quality. And so I'd love to talk about how do you see data quality? What are the things that you're doing to kind of ensure data quality? You talked a lot about a lot of them, but I'd love to maybe have a, just a quick discussion about it. Yeah. I think there's, you know, the, the most direct way that we think of data quality comes down to three things. One is whether this is an actual person that's on the other end, that's providing some, you know, some information. Uh, secondly, are they who they say they are? And the third one is, are they being truthful in what they're in what they're providing? The reality is on the last one, often it comes down to survey and data collection design. Um, so I'll limit some of my comments on that. But you know, I think through technology um, and the approach, um, you know, we can do, you know, different types of validation on this is an actual person. So, you know, part of our registration process is to go through some validation checks. So we can, you know, being on a mobile device, we can detect whether, um, you know, through GPS and, you know, through connections, if they're connected through a VPN and they stay in their US, but they're actually somewhere, you know, somewhere else. Um, we can we do a bunch of validation around um, data that they enter. You know, we can do connections against you know things like LinkedIn. So a lot of it is both validating if they are a person and looking at some behaviors, trying to find consistent um, consistent uh, you know behaviors. And you know, I think the most the way that most are approaching you know data quality in industry is they go through exercises to stress test the the respondents 
um, which in many ways I feel is very unnatural. Like, see, there's nothing natural about taking them through 10 minutes of clicking on radio buttons and then asking them to spend two minutes on um, some, you know, deep question and you want them to write a bunch of, 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 of text. I think it's, um, we're kind of ignoring what a natural experience is with, um, with, with consumers today. So I think a lot of it, you know, there's no silver bullet. It's about stacking to build confidence, trying to, um, you know, look at context and validation and understanding what some of the, you know, reliable behaviors are. But I think a lot of it ultimately comes down to transparency. Like I'm, as a buyer, I'm okay with problems with data because that's part of the, um, uh, you, know, you know, part of the process, but I want to have transparency into that. So some of the things we are doing is, you know, we're building these transparency reports. Like John was saying is you get a delivery of data, knowing how long they've been on, on the system, you know, what's the tenure, you know, how many surveys do they take? You know, um, you, we have reputation systems. So we're starting to track, you know, what are positive behaviors that are reliable, but then doing this on both sides of the audience. Like we've had a number of partners that unfortunately we had to boot them off of the system because we are seeing poor survey experiences, which are being reflected in the experience of the, um, of the respondent. So we do things like have, you know, ratings on every data job that individuals do. So imagine a world where you get offered 27 cents to participate in a 15 minute survey on a mobile device. And it's coming from a one star rating, uh, you know, survey provider. What's the liability of, of what's the predictability of them actually participating. So we're trying to do things to discourage certain behaviors and encourage, uh, encourage other ones. And a lot of it comes down to positive experiences. You know, at SampleCon this year, it was amazing how many discussions were around, um, you know, um, experiences about having to think, especially now that we're looking at Gen Z, they have different expectations around privacy and experiences. And, you know, some of the talks around dispelling, dispelling the, the myth of professional respondents that they mean you know, poor quality. I think most of the quality problems come through a lack of transparency. And so we're trying to address it by implementing uh, a number of techniques to, to expose that. Brian, Brian, can I turn this back on you? You, you know, we have a very, um, we have a particular view on this as an, as an operator right now and, and having a, in a sense, a direct connection to these respondents. Um, and so we sort of think about things from first principles, but from the, those first principles being, how do you get a respondent to behave in a way that you that you want? But how does that how does that align or not with the with with what you guys see when you're sort of you get the benefit of looking out across many different sample sources over over extended periods of time? I mean, does that? Yeah, I guess I'm interested in what what your take on that is. I think it's fantastic because. I love the transparency, first of all. Um, that's so key. And I think that one of the challenges that we have is that I spend an inordinate amount of time and many researchers spend an inordinate amount of time to try to almost trick respondents. I am constantly trying to design a question, what color is the sky? What is two plus two? Hey, take this, solve this CAPTCHA. Um, I'm reversing scaling. I'm putting red herrings in 
And that is not really fair to someone that's willing to take a survey for 30 cents, right? That, and it's unfortunate as researchers that over the course of the past, I, mean, I don't know how long, 10 years, 20 years, forever, that we've kind of been forced to do that. And online has added a whole nother level of challenges for us as researchers, that we can't just design a questionnaire that focuses on the business objectives. That's, that's altruistic in these days. We have to try to prove that the people that are taking the survey are who they say they are. And we have we we've designed these crazy methods with you know there's a product out there called Honesty Detector and there's all kinds of things out there and it's very unfortunate and it's not fair and so when we talk about lowering response rates and we talk about how many people are actually taking surveys and we are not sure about duplication across panel and all of these things almost don't even get to the part where you get to evaluate whether they're just a good respondent like did they offer a good open ended <laughs> answer right. And so that's what I see, unfortunately, and most it, – it almost makes me sad when a researcher gives me a questionnaire that does not have that in there. Um, and I have to tell them, you know, you might want to add some data quality questions in there. And so I've always thought that your company measure, as well as the benefits that you're bringing, will help fix that because it's just – it's honestly a shame. I'm like, why would anybody take a survey when – like you mentioned earlier – or Paul did, I think, that 90% of the time, you don't even get to do what we asked you to do. The 10% of the time that we that you do get to do it, we're going to try to trick you, right? And to me, that's just a failure of our whole industry. And now I made myself sad. So I, John or Paul, do you have anything to say about that? <laughs> Is that what you see? Do you all see that too? Do, do clients send you questionnaires where you're trying to trick your respondents? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we, we do yeah. that a lot. And I do think that this industry is, you know, it's set for a tidal change. Um, and we've seen this in other industries as well. Um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, we've spent time in, you know, ad technology, um, which has gone through a few wild, you know, wild rides. And we were in the middle of it. We had just sold our tech company to an ad tech company. And um, Mark Pritchard stands up and says, I'm not, we're not going to spend another penny yep. uh, without having some kind of guarantees uh, around quality. And this was in the sense in, in that industry, it was around viewability or ads being viewable. O- almost overnight, that literally changed the industry. Companies were disappearing after that. Transparency completely rocked that uh, industry. And if you look at what that, where that industry is today, is they're starting to focus a lot more on the fundamentals, things like creative quality. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe, and you know, three of us talk about this a lot, that there's going to be a moment that the big brands are going to stand up and, and say, there is a bare minimum of quality of respondents and how you treat your respondents. You know, this is the Clean Water Act. Um, that will all of a sudden do a cleanup in the industry. That certain things just will not be, um, you know, be be acceptable. And in the meantime, we're kind of circumventing, you know, playing these little games with, um, you know, with respondents, trying to trick them, and trying to see if they happen to click on the wrong thing. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 frustrating. It's it's a collective action problem is what it is. I mean, Paul, you mentioned Jackie Lorch from Donata and that presentation that she gave. And, and it was exactly about this, where she was essentially saying that 
for market research as it stands today, that respondents are, or the, the, the happiness, the satisfaction of respondents is an externality for this industry, right? Um, even today, you know, this is sort of in ways small and large. So on um, the programmatic marketplaces today, um, which again, I, this is not a rant against programmatic marketplaces. I mean, we we offer programmatic um, access to it, and we we interact with these marketplaces. But but um, the as a researcher, as a buyer on these marketplaces right now, there's very very weak incentives to have a low um, conversion rate. And, and what what the programmatic marketplaces mean by conversion rate is the percentage of people that um, get let into the service that, that qualify into the survey. Um, so uh, the, you know, the, the averages on marketplaces today are sort of in the single digits, the high single digit percentages, right? So where, so that means that out of every 10 people that click on an invitation, wherever they find that invitation, they get to the first page of the survey, they fill out some demos, they answer a few more questions, um, nine out of 10 of them are getting screened out at that point. Right, and there's just there's no justification for that. It's like Paul says: you once you see this stuff, you can't unsee it. You can choose to ignore it, um, or you can choose to do something about it. Um, but so you know, we just we have to stop treating um, respondents as an externality. It's 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 come back to bite us, and then we're in this sort of negative feedback loop where all of our behaviors. Um, are predicated on this sort of original sin, and we just keep spiraling further and further where prices continue to go down, which means respondents are less likely to respond, um, which means that you now have no longevity with your respondents in a panel, um, which means you can't pay them very much because you have to make, as a panel company, you have to make all of your money from the first survey that they that they take because you probably won't see them again after that. Um, and so... Yeah, we, we, we need a reset, and it's non-trivial to get that to get that reset. I mean, clearly, you know, as Owen said, we sort of we we um, launched into this space thinking, all right, what we'll do is we'll create a, a, a protocol that can underline everybody, and we can get everybody to to build on top of that with a new set of road rules. But that mm -hmm. just, you know, from a practical perspective, that's just very difficult to pull off. And so we have to sort of increment into this into this new world, this new set of rules. Um, bit by bit, turn by turn, by um, by sort of building products which are compelling um, because of and in addition to to these um, these quality guarantees and so on and so forth. Now you do realize that this the headline of this uh, podcast is going to be the original sin in market research. <laughs> yes, I, I was just about to ask Brian. Did he ever think when he asked the three of us to get on a on a podcast with him that in in a space of ten minutes we would go from a collective action problem, an academic paper published in nineteen sixty five, to the Clean Water Act? I think which was a bill created in the US. <laughs> yeah, but the Clean Water America. Act. I didn't see that coming for for sure. Um, but yeah, I, via via the adult industry too. The adult, <laughs> bit of Pornhub in there, yeah. Right. Well, I could talk about data quality all day long. I want to have you guys back on and maybe have a another discussion around data quality. But in the for time, I want to go to some fun stuff. Is that okay with you guys? Yeah, definitely. Okay. You mean that wasn't Brian? That was that was so much fun for us. We loved data quality. <laughs> yeah, you got me all riled up there for a second. Um, 
So we always try to have our guests do the four P's. Um, we take them from the marketing mix and we ask a few questions. We kind of do our own little spin on it. Um, first P is perform. And that is what something don't people don't know about you. Does anybody have a hidden talent they want to talk about? Anyone? Yeah, I'll, I'll pick on John for a moment. Uh, Uh-oh. Many, well, you may know that he's an Australian, but he is a climber. He's an avid climber, but he lives in Florida and recently moved from Louisiana. Yeah, so not a very, not a very intelligent rock climber, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very mediocre rock climber. Actually, what I think was, would, was, is the more interesting hidden talent is, is Mr. Hanks with his background in, in DJing and turntabling. And oh, there's, yeah. this, there's, this, there's this great story that he told us where, was it London, Owen? I think you were opening a club in London. Um, this is a sort of back in the day. And so he had, he had a, a, a brand new club to open and was trying to put together some um, scheme to, to get um, lots of club goers to this thing out of the blue. So they um, got a great DJ to headline. Um, they packed the place full of all of their um, wait staff and their the bartenders. Um, they advertised the opening night. And they had a couple of people um, lining up out the front, uh, in front of the bouncer out the front. And um, at opening time, people started to line up. And the you can you know they're standing outside this thing, waiting for the bouncer to let them in. You can hear this sort of booming bass line coming from the thing. And minutes go by, then hours go by, and nobody's getting let into this thing. There's a couple of people dribbling out of this, um, and eventually everybody sort of gets frustrated. Um, and um, but they've also had their appetite wet because there's this club that's just open that's already packed and they can't get into. So they take off. And meanwhile, Owen's sitting inside this club alone with the DJ and the wait staff, just drinking the night away, um, making it seem like the club was overflowing. Uh, so that was his, that was his original sin within the clubbing scene, I think. However, I would just to clarify one point is that the club did let people in the next week and they paid twice as much the next weekend to come into this very, very, you know, highly, highly unique establishment. Uh, so, uh, but you couldn't do that with, mo- with mobile phones these days. There was no mobile right. phones at the time. Um, but actually, I think that Paul's, Paul has a hidden town. He, you know, he's pretty good in a car these days, but actually it's his, it's his, it's, it's his more youthful talent that we like him best for. And he occasionally turns up to meetings on it as well. What, what, tell him what you do, Paul. What's your, what's your hidden talent? Oh, my young days, uh, I was a BMXer. I had a quarter pipe in my backyard. and Oh, my gosh. I got to meet uh, like the Dennis McCoys, Matt Hoffman's of the world and stuff. And, but uh, I'm too old for that stuff now. <laughs> that's amazing um that's cool thank you um next p um pandemic this is our new p um hopefully we don't have this p much longer but um what are some funny things that you're doing during the quarantine i'm going to give you two quick ones that, I, that i've been doing that are funny um first one if you listen to the podcast you know that i somehow got addicted to tiktok which is an app built for teenagers but i'm somehow addicted to it and when i favorite account to follow now is called tramp wall and um Paul, you seem like you're adventurous. Tramp wall are these guys that get on about a 30-foot wall and jump on 30 feet down to a trampoline and go back on top of the wall. That sounds impressive enough, but they do these crazy little flips and stuff. 
I'm addicted to this now. Like I'm obsessed with watching the tramp wall guys do crazy tricks. Um, that's my number one newest um, pandemic crazy thing I'm doing. The second one was last Friday night, come home from work and I'm just kind of browsing Twitter. You know, there's nothing else to do on a Friday night anymore. And I see that there's a trivia night online. And so I join a trivia night. I'm like, that's cool. It's nine o'clock on a Friday. I'll do trivia for an hour. I get on there and the, the first couple of topics are kind of like your normal topics, like like current events and science. And then all of a sudden, every other topic the rest of the night were like, it was about like Jewish activists, I think. It was a lot of questions around Judaism and activism. I'm like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? But I had to kind of stick it out. But that's my other funny story that for an hour and a half, I kind of hung out with some Jewish activists and took trivia night. Um those are my two stories. Um, giving you time to think about it. Anybody else doing something funny during this crazy time you're living in? I don't know if it's necessarily fun. It's not. A, it's not a something I've taken up. But I'm, so it's a shame that there's the that um, uh, that you can't see where I'm sat. So where I'm sat for for my lockdown pandemic, you know, meetings is a um, is a pretty uh, empty room. But on one side of it, it leads out into the garden. And it has these big glass, um, you know, uh, bifolding doors and. I was sat on a call um, uh, uh, literally yesterday, and I happened to be talking to Patrick Comer from Lucid um, on a Zoom call. Just nothing unusual about about that, apart from halfway apart from halfway through the call, it sounded like someone was was had, sh- had shot something, um, or actually had tried to shoot me because there was this almighty noise, and a pigeon had decided to fly just straight into the glass windows. And it literally made the letter, because I'm in an empty room, it sounded like someone had been shooting. And um, I think I saw Patrick Comer duck uh, on his end of the room call. And I, had, I definitely had a full cup of coffee that I literally threw across the room. So um, I was trying to have a grown up business conversation and I'm not sure how well that went down, but uh, that's, that's, my, that's my novelty story of yesterday anyway. Um, I mean, my my reading on that is that there's that you and Patrick are trying to cook up some deal, and right. there's like there's like biblical retribution going down here. This is like locusts and raining frogs at this point. Now, yeah. now for me, it's I'm not sure this is a funny one, but I do get laughed at. So one of the few um, industries that have flourished during this pandemic is esports, and particularly the um, sim racing like some of these races there's three four million people tuning in and watching these so as a result in my basement i now have a pretend red bull racing seat with a pretend steering wheel driving a pretend car on the pretend track but it's okay because i'm wearing real racing shoes (laughs) yep that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, we're good. Eight, almost eight weeks in on the pandemic. That seems about right. I I I think um uh, so we uh, uh the the only other thing that that I think that the pandemic is that it's not it's not I'm not sure it's John and I talk about this quite a lot of the time is that we should have all made a pact. I mean, just universally, globally, we should have made a pact. Are we are we all going to come out of the 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 lockdown? Just you know, hugely obese because we all just decided to eat nonstop. But like, you know, 
Right, right. Like, however long it takes. So we're just going to come out and just say, you know, it's okay. Everyone's in the same boat. We're all going to come out the same way. Or are we all going to come out like ripped and, you know, fitter than we've ever been in our life? Because the problem is now we've got this dilemma that's going on right now, which is uh, seeing people on, on Zoom, you, can, you know who has done the, you know, the extra 500 miles on the treadmill and the right. person who's just gone to the fridge every five minutes because actually, oh, it's there in the next room. So, um, so I, 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 I quite like, I quite like that. What the, the yeah, I, I mean, there's a reason why Owen quite likes it, and that's because the thing that I do during the pandemic is get angry every time I open up Strava and I see, oh, Owen Hanks has just done another seventy-two mile bicycle ride. Right. Given, Give him, give him a kudos. And I'm like, no. The plan was that we're all going to get fat and and atrophy. Uh, so that, I think that's why you, you're you're on the wrong side of this argument, Owen. It's disgusting. Uh, just to be clear, they're all virtual rides, Brian. You know, so <laughs> got it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm moving to the next P, which is going to be podium. And I'm going to read you. I'm going to. I'm going to bridge the version that I got via email. This is the top three of something. And this is something kind of like the non-American version is better than the American version. And I'm going to bring producer Brian in this one as well, because I am completely outnumbered here. Producer Brian, we used to make fun of him a lot on the podcast because he's Canadian. And um, Paul is also Canadian. And John is Australian. And Owen is British. I think you have that right. And so they brought this topic up. And so I'd love to hear kind of what the top three things that you think is better outside of America. Did did I get that right? Yeah. And, and, you know, it it wasn't simply that we're all all from the Commonwealth and and not the U.S. But it must be said, I've listened to many episodes of Intellicast. (laughs) There is a lot of Canadian and Australian and English slander that has come from Intellicast. Too long. Too long. Here's revenge. Time for some revenge, yeah. Actually, we didn't we didn't think of this one earlier, but um, but now that we have Brian, producer Brian, on, um, there's clearly a sort of a um, uh, a Ricky Gervais, Carl Pilkington, because you know, obviously, Carl Pilkington was the producer of the Ricky Gervais show for quite a yeah. long time, and um, and so maybe we could start with the the first one, which is the British office should never have been created into the American office. It clearly it was clearly a winner to start with and it didn't need to be abused for the US public, right? For, uh, by, um, by uh, I can't even remember. Who is that actor? I think he's pretty well known now, but uh, Steve Carell, is he called? I don't know. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that, that, that should have made, remained a British program. So I, 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 oh. I'll add that one. That's, that's definitely one. We might get more than three here, Brian. <laughs> yeah, keep going. That's a good one. Yeah. All right. You, you, you go on. I'm the second one is uh, chocolate. Oh, like we have Smarties up here. Yep, we have Cadbury's here. I think you're fine. I I put the same thing on my list. <laughs> you forgot <laughs> Coffee Crisp, Mister Big, and O Henry. I will add yeah. to that list. <laughs> and as part of that, one of those three is always an entrance fee when my family from Canada comes to visit. They can't get in the door unless they hand over one of those. <laughs> Okay, good. Uh, I disagree with both of these so far, but keep going. All right. The third one that we nominated was the parliamentary system of government. Oh, I like that. We, <laughs> we, we believed that the, the moppy head, uh, despite the moppy head uh, English prime minister at the moment, 
that over the course of time, the uh, the parliamentary system will be the superior system. <laughs> Definitely. Given our current situation here in America, it's hard to argue with that one. I've got two. I'll add real quick, and you all can add on more. Uh, number one is maternity leave. Like, everybody oh. else kind of nailed maternity leave, but Americans, like, we're, I think moms are lucky to get more than three weeks off, but in Europe, you can, I don't know how long it is, I feel like you can raise your child to a grade school before you have to go back to work, and that's great. As a proud member of WIRE, I have to mention that one. Um, the second one is tipping policy. I think somehow America got kind of out of control with the tipping policy. I don't mind tipping people, but it's just out of control. I'm tipping every single person I encounter. I'm constantly going to the bank to get $1, $5 bills to tip people. Those are two things that I think, especially Europe, has really nailed that America has not. Yeah, maybe I, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna add one because it's it's uh, it's very near and dear to my heart. But actually, I, I'm actually gonna go out on a limb here, Brian, because I'm not sure that my my two co-founders always agree with me on this. But I think spelling and the misuse of our language is also one that is unfortunately something that happens in not just the United States, but also in most of the Commonwealth countries as well these days. So um, that there there is a U in lots of those words that end or. Um, and there, there's never a Z in realizing, specializing in any of those words. There was definitely an S in there for many, many, no, many I, years. I, 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 I'm going to side with my adopted country here on this. I think the Z is much more accurate than monetize with an S. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and a U in color makes no sense either. That's just showing off. <laughs> so no, the, the Americans did, did well here. I don't know why the U.S. and Canada didn't agree on basic things like that. That's crazy to me. Yeah, very Canadian. We just use both. <laughs> right. Either. It doesn't matter. You're too nice. Is that Bri producer Brian? Do you have any more? I did. So in the theme of chocolate as well, chips. Oh, I, I will say the that. old dress oh. was coming out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I have my kids addicted to them now too. Luckily, we can get them here at least in Ohio. Also, I'm going to say this. I don't know if Owen or John or even Brian will agree, but Netflix. So there is a lot of different, better content on Netflix in Canada than there what? is here in that's, the U.S. That's breaking news to me. So a lot more mainstream movies you will stream on Netflix than anywhere else. Is it because of the Canadian dollar? No, it has to do with international movie All rights. Right. <laughs> so just cross the just cross the river, go across get 200 yards into Windsor and then to open your Netflix app, see how much it changes. Well, next time I'm allowed in Canada and sometime in the next three, four years from now, maybe I will do that. Um, any other ads, late ads to this? This is a great topic, by the way. Good job. I, I could go on, but unfortunately <laughs> I'm, I'm, in, I'm in danger of, uh, of losing not, not, not only the American um, colleague and potential customers that we have, um, but actually, co-founders quite quickly. So I, I, I'll okay. we'll stop there then. Yeah, yeah. I have I have a I have a green card to worry about. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm good with the rest of it. Okay. Well, listen. Yeah, you guys are awesome. I loved having you all on. How how can people reach you if they want to kind of reach out to you? Um, very simply, um, just all of our first names, but not all on the same email um, at measureprotocol.com. So Owen at Paul at and John at Measure Protocol. And if you can't be bothered with our real names, then just put info at Measure Protocol and we'll, we'll get right back to you. Awesome. Well, 
again, I really appreciate all three of you being on the podcast. I've wanted you on for a long time, and we could have done another hour and a half of this. And um, I'm super excited about the the transparency and the quality that you're offering. And I'm looking for big things for you, not just in 2020, but um, in the future as well. So thanks for joining, guys. Okay, thank thanks. you. Thanks. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks, man. Hey, that was an awesome interview, Brian. What did you think? That was great. I mean, we could have been on there for another two hours. That hour flew by. Yeah, we um, we actually cut out some of the content. that we, we need to have them back on only to talk about some data quality topics because I went on a big rant there out of nowhere about data quality. I don't think they – I think it surprised them because um, you know I was a little harsher than I think they probably wanted to be. Um, well, that and we yeah. – at that point, we were already like 45 minutes in. So right. we yeah. did have Who's to cut. Like, ah, yeah, we're, we want to talk about this, but we're also going to have to cut this short. Right, right. Yeah, so um, it was awesome having those guys on. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have any feedback, email us, contact us on Twitter, EMI underscore research or Intelicast One. Thank you, Brian. It was a long interview. We went long yesterday. As always, I appreciate it. And thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.